Father, we thank you uh, that in every generation you raise up for yourselves uh, your, your servants and, and the disciples of Jesus. And, and even in those names that we just read, uh, those names which sound funny to us and about whom we know very little, but uh, you know about them and, and, and through their ministry, um, we are still beneficiaries to this day. And we ask that you will now, by your Spirit, do a, a great work in us, but, but not a new work, a work that you've done for the past 2,000 years and longer, that you would change our hearts, that you would grant that as we look at the Scriptures that we would not just read an old document, but that we would hear you speak, and that we might be in our day the disciples through whom you do wonderful things. So make us, make our hearts soft. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, everybody. Um, we are finishing up Colossians today, which um, I'm a little sad about. I, I, I've told a number of you, every time I, uh, we preach through a book of the Bible, we come to the end of it, and I want to start over. Um, because there's so much we didn't cover. Um, but we're not going to do that. We're going to move on, don't worry. Um, but we're, we're finishing it out, and, and, and it, it's probably worthwhile as we conclude Colossians to just do just a, a really short kind of recap about it. You remember that um, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, and it was a letter that was addressed to a young church, a small church, probably a lot like our own, and it was a church that was asking the same question uh, that, that, that we've been trying to ask over these last months. What does it look like to be a church that lives out Jesus' vision? And so Paul writes this letter as a kind of like a coaching document to them, saying, here's, here's, here's some of the main things. And you'll remember that um, all through Colossians, the key thing, the insight that holds the whole thing together is, is simply... It sounds simplistic, doesn't it? Jesus Christ is everything. So if, if you want to be a church, according to Paul, that really lives out God's vision for what a church should be, then we have to be a people who are absolutely captivated by Jesus Christ. Absolutely captivated. And he makes that argument um, in a variety of different ways. He says, listen, Jesus Christ is, do you remember this? Is the fullness of God. We talked about this months ago. The fullness of God, so that if you know Jesus, you have access to, to all of who God is. God, by definition, is bigger than any of us can grasp or imagine. Um, none of us, the idea that we have in our minds about God is, does not reflect who God actually is. But when you know Jesus Christ, through that relationship, you have access to God that is much beyond what any of us can grasp. But not only, says Paul, is Jesus the fullness of God, in a way, he doesn't use this language exactly, but he says he is the fullness of the universe in this way, that in Jesus Christ, all the uh, treasures of wisdom and knowledge and, uh, is found, so that if you want to really know the deep meaning of the universe and the deep meaning of who we are and what this whole thing means, then you look at Jesus Christ, says Paul. 
And then not only that, Jesus also is the head and the source of the church. So that a, a church that uh, uh, is severed or not united to Jesus, that is not captivated by Jesus, is a church that is decapitated and, and will die. So Paul says, Colossians, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ is everything. Now, that's a big argument, a, a, a kind of cosmic argument. Now, keep that in mind and look at verse 2. Paul says, in light of everything I've just been saying about Jesus, here's the big finish. Here's the big finish. Are you ready? ready? Look. The big finish, big conclusion. Pray. Pray. And, and then a bunch of names that are hard to pronounce, although Rebecca did a remarkable job. Pray. Now, there's part of me that wants to say, now, Paul, okay, hang on. You made this big argument, this cosmic argument about who Jesus is. At the end, surely you could give us some soaring rhetoric, can't you? Come on, kind of, you know, it needs to pitch up at the end and really get everybody going. And all you give us is pray or keep on praying. Why? Why does Paul end with pray? Why does he end with one of the most basic, probably, arguably, the most basic Christian act that there can be? Pray. Now, take that question. Why does Paul end with prayer? And, and let it hang out over here. And I want to tell you a story that's not going to sound like it relates at all, but it will. Okay? All right. And this is going to be a story that uh, I'm going to tell in Fast Forward. Okay, but first, go back uh, 250 years. 250 years ago or so, uh, in Central Europe, I think what's now the Czech Republic, um, there was a, uh, a refugee crisis. Not dissimilar to the refugee crisis presently. Uh, there were a group, uh, there, there was an, a number of uh, armed conflicts in the area, and uh, what happened was there were uh, these ethnic and religious minorities of a variety of different shapes that uh, became homeless, that they, that they, had to, they became refugees. Their home became hostile, and they had to move. And Protestants were killing Catholics, Catholics were killing Protestants, and they were all killing, I mean, it, it was a bad situation. And in the midst of this, there was this wealthy landowner who was just utterly captivated by Jesus. And his thinking went something like this. He said, listen, if Christ has welcomed me, then I must welcome you. And so what he said to these refugees is he said, listen, um, I know you're very different from each other and you don't agree on, on various uh, points of religion and you don't have a similar background but, background, but nevertheless, if you want to, you can come live with me. You can come and settle on my property in Central Europe. And so they did, and they settled in a place called Moravia. And what happened is, this very diverse group, the, the, the one thing that this uh, wealthy landowner said, he said, come and live, let's live together, but if we're going to live together, we need to pray together. And so they began to do that, and they began to pray. And at first it was very mundane, but then something happened, something remarkable happened. As they prayed, it was as if um, the Jesus that Paul describes in Colossians just, Colossians just became vivid and real to them in a way that he hadn't been previous. And they became utterly captivated by Jesus so that over time, the thing they held in common was an increasing captivation by Jesus. They became attached to him 
in a deep and profound way. And the more they became attached to Jesus, the more they became attached to one another. And very importantly, the more they became concerned about the world around them. And I understand that a prayer meeting that was started there actually continued 24-7 for 100 years or so, which is remarkable. They took shifts. Now, fast-forwarding, a group of these uh, people, they were called Moravians, um, decided to become, you know, intentional Christian immigrants, um, which is missionaries. And (laughs) is that what you are? And they got on a boat, and they sailed to Georgia. Um, and they, which was a colony at the time, and, and on, on the boat, some of you know this story, um, the, the boat hit up upon a storm, and it was a, a terrible storm, and there was, the boat was uh, in danger of going down. And, and on the boat, there was an Anglican vicar, priest, who uh, graduated from Oxford, taught at Oxford, um, knew a lot about Jesus, but didn't know him himself. Not really. And in when his life was in danger, he just, he just freaked out. He was just utterly wrecked with fear. But he looked over at these missionaries, and they were praying, and they were singing. And he goes over to them, and he says, what are you doing? And they said, well, we know where we're going. Do you? And that caused some discomfort. <laughs> uh, sometime later, that, that guy's name is, is John Wesley. Sometime later, he became captivated by Jesus, largely through their, their ministry. And then he became a catalyst over the next many years. He became a catalyst of starting uh, these little communities of Christians who were captivated by Jesus and marked by prayer all over the world. About 50 years after that, a guy uh, grew out of that movement called William Wilberforce, and he gathered a group of people in his neighborhood. It was called the Clapham Sect. His neighborhood was Clapham in London. They gathered together, and one of the, they were captivated by Jesus and marked by prayer. They helped end the slave trade, but they also helped launch the worldwide missionary movement, intentional Christian immigration. And out of that, um, people went all over the world, but notably, uh, uh, many people went to sub-Saharan Africa. And over the next century, um, the exact same thing began to happen in sub-Saharan Africa. So you had these uh, communities popping up all over the place, each with their unique stories, but all united by the fact that they were captivated by Jesus and they were marked by prayer. About 20 years ago, um, a group of people from all over Central Africa who had been uh, shaped by this ongoing movement began to pray for the United States. Emmanuel Anglican Church is the fruit of that. Now, that's a very simplistic story. In fast forward, uh, Jim, why are you telling us this? I tell you this to say, to say what I'm about ready to say. Whenever you find living churches that are captivated by Jesus, you find that they are marked by prayer. And you also find that that is the storyline of the church that is vital and full of growth and impact wherever they go. Captivated by Jesus, expressed by prayer. And if you keep that in mind, then you come back, it it becomes clear that prayer is the perfect way for Paul to end his letter about the glory of Jesus Christ. Because prayer is just breathing for a church that's captivated by Jesus.
Now, let me flesh this out just a little bit more. I want to point out three things. I want to show you the aim of prayer. I want to show you uh, the tone of our prayer. And I want to show you the mission of prayer. Okay? First of all, the aim. Look at verse 2. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. There he's talking about regular daily prayer. Um, Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Okay, I want you to think about your prayer life for a few minutes. Um, If... uh, what are you aiming at when you pray? Let me tell you my default approach to prayer. Uh, Very often, Jim's prayers are the outward religious expression of a deep inward anxiety. I call it fretting with God talk. I've told you about this um, before. Um, It goes a little bit like this. It it goes, um, God... Uh, you are not adequately informed as to the nature of my situation. Um, I am, I, have you seen the problem I'm facing? It's terrible. And, and make it better now, 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 you know? And, um, and here's the problem with fretting with God talk. The problem is when I pray like that, it always backfires. I get worse. And the reason I get worse is that fretting with God talk is merely, it's just a type of idolatry. I feel, I feel like I'm very, being very religious, you know, and that makes me feel good. But it actually doesn't. I'm not worshiping God in that moment. I'm worshiping whatever it is that's freaking me out at the moment. I'm like John Wesley on the boat looking at the waves. And there's no power in it. Now, keep that in mind, go back to Paul, because the sort of Paul, uh, prayer that Paul's talking about is the opposite. And we get a little bit of an insight into it in verse 12. So he says this, verse 12, he says, Epaphras, now Epaphras was uh, the one who planted the church in Colossae. Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always, and here it is, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, namely, that you would stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. Okay, watch what Epaphras is praying for there. He's not fretting about his life, although he'd just been ill, as I understand it. He's not fretting about the Colossians. What he's doing is he's praying that the Colossians might grow. He's praying that they would grow up in the maturity and particularly in grasping and agreeing with the will of God. Lovely, Jim, but what does it mean? Well, the rest of the Colossians tells us. We are mature as Christians. We're grown up as a church when we are, you know what I'm going to say here, when we're utterly captivated by Jesus. And when we find Jesus supremely compelling. We're mature in the will of God when we are attached to Jesus in trust and loyalty in love to an extent to which when Jesus says, you need to deal with this area of your life, you go, do I? Ooh, it might be painful, but I trust you, Jesus, and I'm willing to do it. Now, that is the aim of regular day in and day out prayer. Um, this is a little dangerous of me because I don't know anything about psychology, okay? So tell me later if I get this totally wrong. Are you familiar with attachment theory? This is just hearsay, really. But um, my my understanding is that um, 
is, is that in, in, in attachment theory in psychology, the, the really, really important thing is uh, that a child needs to form bonds of, of trust and affection and love with, with a parent, ideally, or with a guardian. And that that's kind of a, a really important part of overall developing in every other area of one's psychological development. Christian prayers like that, we pray not just to get God to do stuff we want him to do. We do ask boldly. Don't imagine we don't. We do. There's no uh, uh, tentative prayers. But it, we pray not so much because we're afraid of the big bad world out there. We pray because we want to know Jesus in it. We pray because we know our story. We pray because we know that and, and if you're a Christian, you, you will know this. If you're not a Christian, this may sound very odd, but um, as a Christian, we know that part of our story is that we were not, we, we were God's enemies. That all of us, in a variety of different ways, have stiff-armed God and pushed God away. But we also know that God, instead of ratifying that decision, he chased us down in Jesus Christ, and he sought us out, and he sought us out by name, and he gave Jesus Christ gave his life to reconcile us to God so that we could be no longer God's enemies, but God's daughters and sons. And we know that in a remarkable and a mysterious way, if you're a Christian, then you belong with Jesus in God's presence. That, so to speak, you, you are able to stand before the presence of God, receiving none of the condemnation you fear, none of the condemnation that you deserve, but in receiving instead the affection and the love which only Jesus deserves and which you could never earn. And when we pray, we breathe in that affection. Do you? What's the aim of your prayer? And if that's not the aim of your prayer, if, that's, if that doesn't touch your experience, do you think you'd be more interested in it if it did? All right, that's the aim. What's the tone of our prayer? The tone, verse 2, is thanksgiving. Christian prayer is always about thanksgiving. Um, now, I could imagine somebody right then coming back at me and saying, no, Jim, wait, time out. What? I could imagine somebody saying, Jim, I've read your prayers. I've read the Psalms. I've read this service sheet. And I know that there's a lot of confession. That there's a lot of, we do not presume to come to this table. That there's a lot of crumbs under table language. And, and there's no health in us. Right? That's not thanksgiving. And I can imagine somebody saying, that's self-loathing. Now, if that's your question, thank you for asking it. <laughs> I was hoping that would come up. Let me respond. Um, and let me illustrate it like this. Everybody breathe. Breathe in. Breathe out. Fantastic. Christian prayers like breathing. We breathe in because we need air. We breathe out because we've been filled. Christian prayer breathes in a deep and profound, urgent need for Jesus Christ. We breathe in, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, without your grace, there is no health in me. We breathe in, I do not presume to come to this table trusting in my own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We breathe in need because we need Jesus. And we breathe in his grace. But then 
we breathe out. And we breathe out, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for filling my need. Thank you for your mercy and grace. We breathe in and we breathe out. And if you look at the liturgies of our church and our services, if you look at the, um, the, the, our, our prayer book and so forth, if you read through the Psalms, it's always breathing in need, breathing out thanksgiving. And that's how we grow in joy and gratitude and peace, standing before the Lord with not one area of our lives that is uh, impure or needy standing in the way of coming before him, but we, we get to just throw it all out there because Jesus' grace is more than enough. And as that happens, the Holy Spirit binds us closer to Jesus so we become more and more captivated by him. So that at the end of our life, after years and years and years of walking with Jesus, when we say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, it means way more than it ever did before. Okay, quick commercial. We've got a new Emmanuel prayer book for Lent. You can get it on the back. Um, and, it, and there's new material in it. So you, the one that you have, it, it doesn't have what this one has. And, <laughs> and in Lent, the focus, the focus in the prayer book and, and, and the focus through Lent is on breathing in. It's in becoming acutely aware of our need so that we, so that we can see Jesus' grace is more than enough. And there's uh, exercises to uh, prepare for confession in the prayer book at the back. And there's daily prayers. There's readings. There are um, uh, uh, prayer exercises for your triplet, for your prayer triplet. If you're not in one, let's talk. Um, And so pick one up. Breathe in, breathe out. Ask the Holy Spirit to reshape the tone of your praying. Lastly, so aim, bring us closer to Jesus. Tone, thanksgiving. Breathing in need, breathing out gratitude. And lastly, uh, mission. What's the mission of prayer? Look at Paul's request, verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, if you were in prison, like Paul was in prison, what would you pray for? I would fret with God talk. I hope not, but I I probably would. Paul prays for an open door. Not an open door so he can escape. That did happen once, but that's a different story. He prays for an open door so that he can describe the glory of Jesus Christ, the beauty of Jesus Christ. You see, the more you're captivated by Jesus, the more you'll be captivated by Jesus' mission. Because you cannot love Jesus without loving those whom Jesus loves. It's just the way it goes. And that's why uh, 250 years ago, a refugee camp in Central Europe turned into a missionary base. They turned into a missionary base. And just This is just for free. Uh, they also invented the hymn. Did you know that? English speakers learn to sing from them. Anyways, talk about that more later. But they became captivated by Jesus and their heart broke, not only for themselves, but for the world. And so they went all over the world. And Jesus has been doing that, not just for the last 250 years, but for 2,000 years. When we pray for a door to open for the word, he does it. Look back at the verse. Um, There are three things we need to pray for when we pray for mission. First, pray for opportunities. 
Opportunities to describe Jesus. That's the open door. The open door means an opportunity to speak of Jesus Christ, uh, both an opportunity in, in, in the sense of a, a relational opportunity, but also an open door in the sense of um, uh, opening the door in people's hearts so that they're willing, so they come to a place where they think it's plausible to listen to Jesus and they're ready. Pray for opportunities to describe Jesus' beauty. Open doors. Secondly, uh, ask Jesus to help you describe him clearly. Paul says, I need to describe him clearly, the mystery of Christ. Pray that I can do that. And the only way to do that is by knowing Jesus well yourself. I'm going to keep hammering at this, okay? The more you're captivated by Jesus, the more you'll find pleasure in describing him to people who can't see that beauty yet. That's how being ashamed of Jesus is overcome, by coming closer to him. Not by just giving yourself a lecture in duty. So open door. Pray for the ability to describe him clearly because you love him. And then um, lastly, uh, ask Jesus to make you wise in how you represent him. We're ambassadors. Look at verse 5. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We try to capture this here at Emmanuel by saying we want to reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ that's in our character, in the way we talk, not only in what we say, but in the way we say it. Don't be a jerk. Love people like Jesus does. Not that you are, but you know what I mean. Anyways. But there's something sober here because it means that um, your character, which is shaped primarily when you're alone, your character and the way you speak will do one of two things, friends. It will do one of two things. It will either clarify and help people see that Jesus is plausible to listen to, or it will end up uh, impeding people from listening to Jesus. And that's why my personal private sin matters for others. And the same is true for you. Ask Jesus to transform you from the inside out so that you're helpful in drawing others to himself. And that, again, happens in prayer. The more you're attached to Jesus, the more you'll resemble him, the more useful you'll be in mission. So, friends, the big conclusion to Colossians. Jesus is the fullness of God. He's glorious. He's wonderful. So pray. And I wish we had time to talk about all these names. It's wonderful. I mean, um, one's a slave who we think may have become a bishop. One's a woman who hosted a church in her home. One's a doctor who ended up reading, uh, writing almost a third of the New Testament. Another one is somebody who abandoned Paul on the mission field and then was reconciled to him. There's great stories there. But consider this. All those names are Paul's ministry team. And they prayed together. And they prayed for each other. And they prayed that they would be captivated by Jesus' beauty and that other people would be captivated by Jesus' beauty. And 2,000 years later, we are the beneficiaries of those prayers. And 250 years ago, those refugees were the beneficiaries of those prayers. And we are the beneficiaries of those refugees in Central Europe. And I think the question that certainly that comes up for me all the time is for Emmanuel Church in 100 years, who are going to be the beneficiaries of our prayers? What's going to be our impact in 100 years?
Did you think that this was just about your lifespan? The answer to that question, what will be the impact of Emmanuel Church in 100 years, and of your life in 100 years, depends to a great extent on the extent to which we pray. So let's pray. Amen.